Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, they'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash slatemoney. And by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is now available on iTunes. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Service as a Service edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a big week in business and finance news. There's a whole bunch of stuff we aren't even going to be able to get to this week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And if it sounds a bit weird, I'm recording this from a hotel room in Los Angeles where I flew out to interview Bernie Sanders. You're going to be able to find that on fusion.net come Monday. I am also joined, as ever, by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Felix. And this week, we are going to talk about Silicon Valley's medtech darling Theranos, which might not be all that it claimed to be, this $9 billion capitalization. Unicorn might be conceivably be on its deathbed after raising $400 million in capital. We are also going to talk about mega mergers. It was a very big week for mega mergers. Are they important or are they really boring? But (laughs) first, you probably heard, you may or may not have heard, you certainly heard if you live in New York, Danny Meyer, who is all New Yorkers' favorite restaurateur. He has restaurants scattered across mostly downtown New York came out with a huge announcement. Jordan, what did he announce? So yes, uh, Danny Meyer says he is going to get rid of tipping at all 13 of his restaurants, most of which are in New York City. Um, but not Shake Shack. But not Shake Shack. Shake Shack doesn't have tipping anyway. No, right? exactly. You leave a tip at Shake Shack. Yeah. And so uh, most people, I think most of the country, if they know about if they are aware of anything Danny Meyer's done, it is Shake Shack. He is the founder of Shake Shack. But he is also, before he ever got into the Better Burger business, he was already one of the most famous and influential restaurateurs in the city of New York, um, trendsetting in many, many ways. And he came out this week and said, I think it's time to do away with tipping, um, which is you know just like an essential part of how restaurants have run for time immemorial in the U.S., and, you know, there there are a lot of forces that are driving this, and we can get into the details of that in a minute. But I, I just want to stake out my position on this, which is it's a good thing. I think it is well past time to try and 
do away with tipping. It's this weird, barbaric, uniquely American practice. Okay, so many thanks to Stuart Sheffer, who anticipated Jordan's line of argument here and said, could you please stop celebrating the end of tipping? Anyone who is celebrating the end of tipping in restaurants has obviously never worked in a restaurant before. It is not a perfect system by any means, but trust me, waiters and bartenders love making tips. And I would like to just jump in there and say, um, of course, there are some people that are going to win in this new system, um, and there's some people are going to lose. And the people that are going to lose are the the waiters, right? The serving. Okay, staff. so Danny Meyer gave a long interview to Ryan Sutton Eaton Eater, and he talked to Pete Wells at the New York Times as well. And he said basically everyone wins, and with the possible exception of the waiters, who about are probably going to come out even. He is saying that he's going to raise prices enough that the amount that waiters earn is going to stay more or less the same while the back of the shop, basically the kitchen stuff, the people who make the food and who don't get tips, are going to see a significant increase in how much they get paid. So my friend, who uh, Sam, is like a, a chef and a restaurant manager, and he actually wrote a post on MathBabe a couple months ago about this exact issue. He made the point that the way they do it, uh, the way they manage money in restaurants is they basically decide how much to charge for food to pay the, the people in the kitchen and that the sort of the waiters are on their own event, essentially because the actual fee they get, the salary is so low and they make their money on tips. And what this means in essence, because it's a very high work intensive environment and low margins, is that the chefs make like twelve fifty an hour. Like it's actually, you don't make a lot of money unless you're a celebrity chef. And the people, other people in the kitchen make even less than that. It's, it's actually surprising how little money is made by the backstaff. What Danny Meyer said to Pete Wells was that he's been in the restaurant industry for 30 years. And over that time, the pay of waiters has gone up by about 200%. At at this, while the pay of kitchen staff has gone up by about 25%. And the reason, the stated reason why he's doing it is not because he's some kind of anti-tipping idealist uh, who just thinks that it's horrible to force people to do those calculations after however many bottles of wine, but rather because he just wants to pay his kitchen staff more and Without abolishing tipping, it's actually really hard to do that. There's also a degree to which his hand is being forced here. Um, you know, New York is set to raise the minimum wage for fast food to $15 an hour. And it's looking like the whole state could potentially head in that direction for all wages eventually. Um, and that's, you know, if it just gets waste raised for fast food... Then he has the problem where his kitchen staff could be making more money at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. If it gets raised for everyone, then he has to find the money to pay his kitchen staff that extra money. So, and, and already he's finding it very hard to find kitchen staff, pro pro probably because they don't get paid well. I also just want to throw in, and as a mathematician, that it's actually impossible to raise the, st uh, the, the wages in the kitchen 
and keep the wages the same for the waitstaff without actually raising the overall price of the food. But no one is no one is denying that the overall price of the food is going to go up. The overall price of the food is going to go up by 25, possibly 30 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing here is he's not just tacking on like some restaurants have done this before. They've instead of saying you get to decide how much you tip, they just say we're putting a 20 percent service charge on your meal. That's not what he's doing. He's not even putting a service charge. He's just raising all of the prices on the menu and actually above 20 percent. He thinks it's going to be 25 to 30. So or insofar as you can raise everybody in the kitchen's wages and still let the waiters make roughly what they were before, it's because he's raising it more that the food prices more than the amount that you would ordinarily tip. I also want to bring up another question and ask you guys, like, do you think the restaurant goers are going to be happy or sad about the fact that they no longer tip, they just pay more. Well, that's that's the uh, big question here is, and there are a few and, layers to it because number and two, two, quests, two restaurants in San Francisco have actually, after going tip-free, have recently this week changed their mind and gone back to charging tips because a little bit because the restaurant goers, like a few of them are saying, I want the control and I want to be able to punish people if the, for bad service or reward people for good service. But mainly because it was, again, a labor thing that the waiters just decided that they could make more money for, if they were working for tips. And I think this is true, especially in places like New York and San Francisco, every so often you get some huge table which orders thousands of dollars worth of wine and which tips 20% and you just make a huge amount of money in, off one table. And that stops being possible under this new Danny Meyer system. Under this new Danny Meyer system, you know, you can't get the good shifts for yourself and make more money. You know, everything is split much more equally. It's much more egalitarian. And maybe some waiters don't want that kind of egalitarianism. From a diner's perspective, as well, it's very unclear that people aren't going to be put off by, you know, the prices of dishes going up from 30 bucks to 40 bucks. That's a big increase. Yeah, that that's yeah. Sticker shock is one of the big issues here. And, and the way Meyer put it when in his interview was you know, he said a lot of people are just passing by the restaurant and looking at the menu on outside the door and they're not even thinking about tipping. So they just see really high prices and they go, oh, oh, crap. So that that's one of the questions here. Will he be able to still lure as many customers to his restaurants as before? Um that said, you know, other people have tried versions of this. It, you know, he is not the first to go tip-free. Some people have reported really good results. Um, you Who know, reported good results? Uh, there have been, I know, you know, Dirt Candy in New York has tried it recently, and they seem to be pretty happy with it. Um, you know, Tom, I mean, Frank, although there was a lawsuit about this, Thomas Keller has been doing a version of this for a long time at, uh, per se, uh, but he just has a standard service fee. I mean, again, it's not... Uh, it's it's not unheard of. It's just the the thing here is that Meyer is by far the biggest restaurateur who is going to be doing this at all of his restaurants. It's it, it's it, his status in the industry that makes it important. And it, yeah, and it does seem like it's sense it it it's, it depends. The success of it will depend on the kind of clientele your restaurant has. Yeah. Well, that's that's why this move is so huge because he's not just doing it for the high end restaurants where it has been tried before with some success. He's doing it for all of his restaurants you know he's doing it for Marta his pizza joint and so that is is the real test where you can you do it for just a completely normal neighborhood place as well as for 
the modern, you know, which is his swanky restaurant in the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. And I think also part of it is, you know, he is first and foremost a business guy. You know, he's not an idealist in any uh, He is a guy who he's not like a chef first or anything. He is a man who runs restaurants and he is a, he's a business mind. So that's one more reason people are taking notice of this, because if he can make it work, then there, there's a case for probably a real business model. So I want to just come back to Stuart Schaeffer, who said, you have no idea how abusive so many restaurants are towards their employees, and getting rid of tipping will only give them one more way of abusing their staff. There is no reason to think this will improve things for tipped employees, and it will almost certainly hurt them. I think at Danny Meyer restaurants, that's probably not true. I think there are restaurants who might abuse this system if they were to adopt it. But ultimately, I just come back to this idea that it's not the wait staff who are the most abused in restaurants. It's the kitchen staff. And yeah. if this really helps the kitchen staff, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that basically Danny Meyer is going to lose some waiters and he's going to He's going to make some wait staff, um, some kitchen staff very, very happy. I also, can we just very quickly lay out a few of the, a little bit more of the case against tipping generally for listeners who aren't totally familiar with it, which is that it does, well, it does two things. One is it, it lulls customers into not realizing how expensive their meal is going to be. So they order more. Um, that's part of the advantage for restaurants. But then also it's supposed to somehow ensure better service. Um, you know, right waiters are supposed to pay more attention to you because they know you're deciding how much to tip. But the problem is it, it doesn't work because people are very inconsistent about tipping and very rarely does it actually have anything to do with the quality of service. There's a researcher at Cornell named Michael Lynn who has looked at this extensively. And most people, like about 4% of the variation in tips can be traced back to the quality of service that people say they've received. But and moreover, much they... more of the variation of tips can be traced back to racism yes. and ageism that if you're white and young you get much better tips yeah, than the world. I was going to say that too. World. Exactly. Um, it's or, not a perfect system yeah, by any means. Uh, ordering alcohol, people do tip more. Um, and there are other little things like Not to mention that if yeah. you have a if you go to a more expensive restaurant, you tip way more. Like so it, the 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 rest the waiters at cheaper restaurants uh, cheaper restaurants aren't making that much money. Yeah. And and I will say there's also a a kind of there Coming back to the kitchen staff versus front of the house staff, there is a slight racial element there, too, in that a lot of high-end restaurants are very white in the front of the house. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their kitchen staff are Hispanic. Especially are, in New York. Are Asian, like, especially in New York. And so there is that here, too, where if you actually just pay people normally rather than, you know, essentially relying on this system that has just kind of been in place in the U.S. for no particularly good reason for so long, uh, you might get a little more equity. Excellent. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. This is for anyone who wants to be paid on the internet, basically. If you're a mobile app developer or you have a website, check out Braintree. They power Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, you name it, Munchery. It just makes it incredibly easy for people to pay you money. Check it out at braintreepayments.com slash slate money. And if you go there, you will get $50,000 of transactions fee free without paying any money at all. It's a completely full stack solution. They will soup to nuts the entire thing for you. They have continuous support. They're a good company. So anyway, 
the address is braintreepayments.com slash slate money. And if you go there, you get your first $50,000 of transactions fee free. Um, Kathy, have yeah. you had a blood test recently? You know, I... <laughs> I have a confession to make. I'm a terrible mother. I haven't had a blood test recently, but my children were supposed to have a blood test recently. And I didn't actually get to bring them to the blood test. Um, I just didn't do it. And I'll tell you did, why. Did, did, because because you don't live near a Walgreens in Arizona where it would be really easy. Well, it's because the getting a blood test for your kid is actually really, really hard because there's like this duopoly that owns blood testing. And it's like, I think, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. And you have to go to them and they're not convenient. It's a really bad system and it needs disrupting. We I need said to it. Disrupt. I said it. We need to uh, disrupt the blood test industry. But guess what, Kathy? Get, what, what, Felix? There's a company which is disrupting the whole world of blood tests. Oh, thank you. Because goodness. you know what else is bad about blood tests? It's not just that they're inconvenient. They're expensive. But also... They involve taking large amounts of blood from a needle which is put into your arm and people like don't like needles and giving large amounts of blood and it's unpleasant. And wouldn't it be just much easier and more convenient if you could just take a little pinprick on your fingertip and just use a micro amount of just a couple of drops of blood instead of having to take as much as you do right now? Speaking as someone who faints when I see a needle, um, I'm going to agree with you there. It would be amazing if it would just be a very small amount of blood. I mean, pinpricks still hurt, though. If only there were some company which promised to be able to do 250 different blood tests just by taking a little nanovial of blood from a pinprick, that company would be worth $9 billion. <laughs> you know what? I think there is such a company, Felix. There's a company that claims to do all this. And I can't even and pronounce his name. So it's called it's called Theranos. Yes. Um, and to me, that sounds like the name of a Marvel villain. But um, <laughs> it is, in fact, the name of one of the hottest startups in America. Uh, as Felix hinted, it's, it's valued at about $9 billion because of these uh, purported innovations in blood testing. However, it's uh, also the, turned the its Wall founder, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes, who's 31 years old, into this unbelievable celebrity. She was on the front cover of the T New York Times Tea Style magazine oh my goodness. Uh, a week or so ago. Yeah. Um, she's on the front cover of Inc. And she's she had a huge profile in the New Yorker. She's the really sort of young, sexy, glamorous face of Silicon Valley, and everyone loves to love her. Yeah, except she may or may not be a little bit, tiny bit of a, a fraud, almost, yeah. at least according to the Wall Street Journal articles that rained hot fire down upon this company oh, yeah. this week. Uh, so, Kathy, do you want to talk about what we all learned about this $9 billion unicorn? Uh, well, we've learned a lot of things this week. Uh, one of the most important things we've learned is that they actually don't do very many of their own sort of proprietary kinds of tests. When we say they don't do very many, we mean they do one. Yeah. If you right. there is exactly <laughs> one blood test which they do for herpes, right. which which where they use their own proprietary technology which uses just a couple of drops of blood. Every other blood test that they do 
they use good old-fashioned Siemens machines and do it the old-fashioned way, which, in, which involves using much more blood. Actually, the, the, actually, that would be a better story than what it is. As I understand it, they don't do it the old-fashioned way for some of these tests. Yeah. For some of these tests, they dilute the small, small vials of blood to get larger amounts of liquid, and then they use those diluted uh, samples. And, and they've been accused of getting really distorted results as, as a result of yeah. this method. Yeah, as, as it turns out, those old-style Siemens machines require the amount of blood they, they ask for for a reason. <laughs> there is, they, they, don't, they tell people not to use the little tiny pinprick that you can yeah. then dilute. Uh, there, apparently, there's some rhyme or reason to this. So, um, But this company, I mean, it's sort of an amazing article because, I mean, they, as the Wall Street Journal was reporting it, out, they were literally changing details on and, and marketing claims on their website. It's, and then they were also hiring David Boyes to defend them. Like they were in full on, you know, ultra defense mode. The Wall Street Journal has been reporting this for five months. They've been hugely defensive for five months. They've been threatening lawsuits against people who talk to the Wall Street Journal. And it doesn't look good. And they've been changing how they behave as well in terms of how they do blood tests. They now only do one blood test with their own proprietary technology because they say, hey, we're going to comply with FDA, um, with the FDA and everything. And this is a new thing. Up until really just a few weeks ago, they were not doing that. And they had many more than just one blood test, which they were using that I, technology. I think they had 15 at some point. And um, it's it's really murky exactly what... They, they're basically not coming clean about what they're doing. But at some point, um, they got accused of of cheating on the proficiency tests, which is like a way of basically doing a bunch of blood tests with a certain method and then comparing it to the sort of the standard Siemens methodology, making sure that they got the same results all the time. Um, and they sort of cheated on these tests, at least according to former employees. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on here. I kind of want to step back for and try to see what the big picture is here. You know, to me, I look at this and I think Silicon Valley is famous and really still the startup world in general is famous for this culture of fake it till you make it. That is a, a line that you hear all the time that even if your product doesn't really exist, it's sort of vaporware, um, you, you act like it's not, like you already have the goods. And I'm wondering, is this just like a a reductio ad absurdum version of that, that this is you fake it until you're worth $9 billion and the Wall Street Journal uncovers it? Or is there something else happening here? Is there another side to this story that maybe um, those of us who have been following along in the journal just aren't aren't getting? Felix, Kathy, what do you think? Well, I think it is exactly that. But I think the mistake they made in this example is they used medicine. I mean, like it's an actual science and you can't really fake science. Um, and it's it's dangerous. Well, you can't for a while, but you'll get caught. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but there's lots of startups. There's one famous startup in Silicon Valley, which has raised a lot of money on um, promising wireless charging that you get to plug something into the wall and then your various devices just charge wirelessly and you don't need to plug them in anymore. And that's amazing, and we would all love wireless electricity into our devices. And there's a whole bunch of physicists who've come out and said, no, this is scientifically impossible. You can't do it. And that hasn't stopped this company from raising millions of dollars. And that's the big question facing Theranos is now that they've raised $400 million of venture capital, that, you know, might conceivably be enough money to get them to perfect this new technology that they claim to have. Or, on the other hand, it might not. Well, I mean, but going back to your example with the electricity uh, in the air, 
What's the worst case scenario in that situation? The worst case scenario is you buy um, a charging station and it doesn't work. As a consumer, well, the worst case scenario is, is you buy a charging station that uses insane amounts of electricity. You wind up dying of some kind of electromagnetic <laughs> okay. pulse. It, comes okay, out. okay, this just, okay. This sounds like fine. You get like a sharper image and then forget about a week later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think if you didn't, if it didn't work, you'd turn it off pretty quickly. I, I mean, the, I think the real difference with this example is that you're actually sending people in inappropriate. Drug, blood tests, and that could have real consequences. One of the qu- quotes from the article in the Wall Street Journal was that um, the potassium levels in some, uh, as a result of some of these blood tests, would indicate that the patient was dead. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, that's a bad sign, right? Yeah, I, I mean, here, don't be killing off your patients. Yeah, here's one thing that I, I kind of wonder reading this. You know, Theranos is, as you hinted before, Felix has has this business relationship with Walgreens, where they do blood tests at their in-house clinics. And I'm wondering if maybe even if they're not using proprietary technology and now they just go back to use it, you know, they just rely on the old Siemens equipment for a while. They might not just survive because they've managed to, to build up this network of, uh, you know, this business base. Uh, well, I think that you're absolutely right. If you've raised $400 million, you can survive quite a long time on five, on $400 million. So even if you're using other people's machines. Contracts, yeah, sorry. Even if you're using other people's machines. And... Interestingly, just the day before the Wall Street Journal article came out, another slightly controversial biotech startup called 23andMe raised over $100 million at a more than billion dollar valuation. It's another unicorn. Um, And I don't know anyone who believes that they could have done that after the Wall Street Journal article came out. That, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that you know, have just been put to work. And people, I'm sure, who made that investment are going, whoa, dude, what have I just committed to? Because 23andMe as well has been highly controversial. Oh, yeah, there was an amazing article about uh, the woman who, the journalist who, who sent her blood samples away to a bunch of different genetics testing companies and got totally different results um, from all of them. And so, yeah, there's a lot of sort of the Silicon Valley wishful thinking meets science is just an interesting and like very unstable uh, intersection. Yeah, it, it's. I think your your point about the stakes just being so much higher than with software or or web iPhones. Yeah, iPhones. I mean, I think it's right. I think that the stakes are just different, and it makes maybe we need to regard these companies a little more warily. <laughs> and the, what's interesting too, by the way, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, like the readership of the Wall Street Journal, you know. Is is not f- the huge fans of regulation. Yeah, but you're seeing like in this case, the FDA is actually stepping in and doing something kind of important, right? Yeah. You you have to make sure that these blood tests are accurate. And to some degree, I think maybe even saving investors from themselves. So they're at least shoveling their money at a company that is doing generic blood tests rather than <laughs> investing in a company that's using completely bunk science. We're we're going to move on to mergers. You want to be part of this discussion? They're not quite as boring as you think they are. But first, I need to tell you about Umpqua Bank, which has a podcast called Open Account, created by Sujin Puck, where she interviews a series of people to explore our collective uncomfortable silence around money. So it's emotional, it's honest, it's funny. Open Account, it's on iTunes. Check it out from Umpqua Bank. This week was massive for mergers. If you're an M&A banker and you didn't make money this week, you're doing it wrong. 
the one of the biggest mergers I've ever come across was announced when, and now I'm going to get this wrong, but basically Ambev, Interbrew, Anheuser-Busch, this huge beer conglomerate, announced it was buying another huge beer conglomerate, Sad Miller, for... $103 billion, which is just a mind-boggling it's, amount The numbers are just too big for normal people. Yeah. I mean, it's the top, but it's basically, the top two brewers any, in the world. Yeah. <laughs> any beer you've ever heard of, it's probably one or other of these guys. And that's not even the most interesting merger that, we, that came out this week, because there's an even more interesting one, not quite as big in dollar amount, but much bigger, much more interesting in terms of um, financial engineering, which is the Dell, the personal computer company, which recently went private in a leveraged buyout, announced that it was buying EMC, which is this huge publicly listed company, for $67 billion. Now, I need to just rewind a little bit here and explain how crazy this is. Dell, is, <laughs> Dell went private at a 20-some billion dollar valuation. And so it's buying a company which is three times as big as it is. And Dell went private in a leveraged buyout. Um, it's called private equity because leveraged buyout got a bad name in the 80s with Mike Milken. So they rebranded themselves as private equity, but it's exactly the same thing. It's a leveraged buyout where you raise huge amounts of debt to pay for a company. And that's exactly what Silver Lake Partners did and Michael Dell did when they took Dell private. They raised billions and billions of dollars of very expensive debt and took Dell private and are now running it as a private company rather than a public company. And now those two, Michael Dell and Silver Lake, along with Tamasek, which is the Singaporean sovereign wealth fund, have teamed up and said, we're not big and leveraged enough. We are going to borrow another $45 billion and buy EMC in a, for, for $67 billion, which makes it by far the largest leveraged buyout of all time. You, you may, if you're you know an old like me, remember the leveraged buyout of RJR Nabisco, which was this enormous thing which books were written about and changed the course of finance. This is bigger than that one even in inflation-adjusted terms. So, you know, I, I think it, it's helpful to paint a picture here. When I, when I read about this deal, what I envision is one of those photos of, like, an anaconda eating a water buffalo. And, like, you know how, like, the anaconda just, like, swells up because it has somehow gotten its jaws around something just so much larger than itself? That's here. Dell is like an anaconda, and it is swallowing a water buffalo. Um, and I guess I, I'm trying to reach for something a little bit more colorful, though, because there, there's this issue with mergers, I think, and Felix, you'd agree that the general public has a real hard time caring about them, even though they involve these massive amounts of money changing hands. And, you know, should, and, and kind of dictate how, you know, the people who's going to run our economy, the companies that, you know, who owns what, who's going to own an industry. So, so we need to bring in the BuzzFeed article. Yeah, right? there was a fan, fantastic BuzzFeed article, which basically said, all mergers are boring. And to at first glance, I would say there's something to that. Um, bankruptcies are relatively boring because, like, let's say American Apparel just filed for bankruptcy. 
Now, you know, you can go into an American apparel store, you can buy American apparel clothes, you can work there, you can be the manager there. And the fact that the company filed for bankruptcy has almost no effect on you whatsoever. The, the, this is just financial engineering. It's a way of reshuffling the capital stack. The old owners aren't the old owners anymore. The old bondholders or loan holders become the new owners. It's a change of ownership, basically. But the business more or less carries on regardless. Well, Felix, I would I would argue that like bankruptcy, at least people understand it. You know, you're right. That well, they not- don't. I think I think a lot of people think that bankruptcy means like going bust and closing down. Well, it sometimes it does. Which, it, but it sometimes does. But in the case of mergers, there, you know, there's an argument to be made that you, it's it's even more just a change of ownership. You know, yes. that if you're selling solid state storage for EMC, and right now you're owned by a bunch of shareholders, and next week you're going to be owned by Michael Dell and Silver Lake Partners, your job doesn't change. If you buy EMC equipment, your equipment doesn't change. Your vendor relationship doesn't change. So it's just a question of ownership, basically, and who cares? Well, yeah, who does care? I mean, what what is the what is the effect on the consumer? So the the here's the only case I I can come up with in my head for caring about these giant mergers, and I think that it, you, in some cases the public does does kind of get riled up and. It really does have to do with competition. It's when antitrust issues arise. And you actually do see this a little bit with beer. Uh, Like when the news that uh, the maker of Budweiser was trying to merge with the maker of Miller, which is, again, what AB InBev and, uh, you know, uh, SAB Miller are, uh, some people got kind of riled up there. And, oh, my God, like the two mortal enemies of American beer are are going to somehow like join forces. And that's probably what's not going to happen, because for this deal to pass antitrust muster, uh, SAB Miller is going to actually have to spin off Miller. It's going to have to create some give it to another independent company. I have, I have two main reasons why we should care about mergers, which are not antitrust. Okay. There, there's one big one and one less big one. The first one is that with something like this, with leveraged buyouts, what you do is you can take very well-run companies which throw off lots of cash and help the economy, and you, lever the, and you load them up with, in this case, $50 billion worth of debt very expensive debt, high yield debt, junk bonds, they used to be called. And when you're working for a company or buying from a company which has to service that huge quantity of debt, that affects the way the company is run. It affects the rate at which the company can grow. It affects the rate at which it can give pay rises to its staff. That basically, in an ideal world, we would have companies saddled with much less debt and have much more equity because equity is much more flexible and allows people to grow more. And debt is more, you know, more of a bad thing. And I think that a lot of these mergers, especially ones like leveraged buyouts, like the Dell acquisition of EMC, they're taking an equity-heavy company and turning it into a debt-heavy company, and I think that's a bad thing. I see. So you're basically saying, like, we change, they, private equity changed their name, but they're doing the same bad things. As- well, they're doing the same thing, and, uh, yeah, and I think having that much debt in the capital structure is a bad thing, and, I, you know, and there's tax reasons why it makes sense. 
in theory, there's this um, economic theory called the Modigliani-Miller Modigliani theorem, which says it shouldn't make any difference how you find yourself, whether it's equity or debt or senior debt or junior debt or convertible bonds or what, that you know, somehow the magic of arbitrage will make them all equivalent. But that's just not true, I don't think. At the very least, it makes you more sensitive to your revenue stream, that it has to be more stable, at least it has to be more profitable. Yeah, I mean, companies don't go bankrupt typically because they issued too much equity like that sort of like that's the bottom line like in a perfect world maybe it wouldn't matter if you use debt or equity but in, in the real so, world there are, people are flawed and make mistakes but on the other hand the the other reason why these mergers are fascinating especially this one is the just insane amount of money that they make for wall street so let me give you some numbers here if you're an m a banker and you you know you work for dell Dell is paying somewhere in the region of 80 to 90 million dollars to its M&A bankers for their M&A advice. If you work for EMC, um, the, its M&A bankers are getting probably over 100 million dollars just for M&A advice. And then on top of that, like call it 200 million dollars in M&A advisory fees, there's another God knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars which are going to be spent on the fees to put the loans and the bonds together to finance this whole deal. Now, I mean, to give you an idea of how big of a deal this is, when this deal was being put together, Jamie Dimon, the CEO and chairman of JP Morgan Chase and the single most powerful banker in the world, personally flew to an EMC board meeting to assure the EMC board that he could get this deal done and that there would the $45 billion of debt would appear and it was going to be fine. These are the deals which make the big banks just salivate because they can make hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fees. So if you wanted to do a, a big picture answer to why we should care about these big mergers, it's that Wall Street or uh, Wall Street banks are making money hand over fist to concentrate power in American Corporate, uh, in corporate America while also larding up companies with tons and tons of debt, which could have negative consequences. Yeah, I was just thinking about that last thing where you're like, we also have yet bigger and stronger corporations. Yeah, so that's... so well, if, bigger, but with so much debt, I'm not sure if they're stronger. Yeah. Wow, so I'm really depressed now, Felix. Can you give me some good news? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know, Kathy. No, I've got good news. I've got good news. So the Wall Street bankers are going to be paid in about five years to restructure this company and split it apart into three different parts. <laughs> they make coming and going. They make money. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and I have some other good news. Okay, please. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
So and, and so continuing the theme of good news, Jordan, is your number good news this week? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so it's What's not really, number this week? It's not really economics related, but it's 22 million. According to uh, Time magazine, that's how many millennial parents are out there. And I'm only sharing this number to give you a little bit of anxiety, Felix, because we're breeding. I am very, <laughs> like, there, there's nothing which, like, the two things which scare me most are millennials and babies. And the fact that millennials <laughs> are having babies is just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, so that's, I'm just, I, I just wanted to make you sweat a little bit with my number this week. I anyway, love babies. Babies are so yummy. Yeah, that's not the, that's the last way you should be describing your child. But anyway. <laughs> Um, my number is 350,000. Um, it's a follow-up number from a previous episode where we talked about DraftKings and no, DraftKings and FanDuel. FanDuel. Yeah. Um, it turns out uh, this is just perfect, right? Um, one of the employees of DraftKings um, made $350,000 off of bets at FanDuel, and they're being investigated for cheating, essentially. And it, it's like, of course, if you think about it, you know, we were talking about well, how— Well, this was the point that you made mm-hmm. in, in the previous podcast, which is that the people who make money are not punters who are sports fans, but it's people who have access to huge amounts of data and can really crunch that data. And the people who have access to the most data are the people who work <laughs> for these companies. I wasn't thinking that directly, but yes, of course. They're yeah. just, they probably are keeping an eye on the hedge fund quant assholes who are, like, betting on these sports things, and they're just like, oh, I'll just, I'll just mimic this guy's debate. Bets on yeah. the other at the, the other company. This is uh, so now we have insider fantasy sports trading. It's awesome. Yeah, the SEC has to look into it. It's amazing. Um, my my number is one point one million, which is the number of shares of Square stock which are owned by Kathy's favorite person and mine, Larry Summers. <laughs> um, Square is Jack Dorsey's other company. It filed to go public this week and Larry Summers has actually already sold a large chunk of his stock at thirteen and a half dollars a share to Riz V Traverse, which is another one of the shareholders. But he still has one point one million shares left and at the IPO price we don't know what that's going to be, but those are probably worth about twenty million dollars. I think you mean twenty eight million. Yeah. Go ahead. And and the question is really all he's done is sit on the board. I don't know how many board meetings he's been to, maybe like a dozen or 20. I don't know. Is he really making like a million dollars per board meeting for, I, I don't, <laughs> what, what has he done to earn his $20 million? He, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all you have. Similar story with Lending Club when it went IPO. I think he got $28 million for being a technical advisor. Really? Probably sitting on the board too. Uh, that guy knows how to get on boards. Get on board. I don't know why I just tried to sing that. I, was, I tried to kind of sing it to the tune of Get On Up, but like it just. I, <laughs> That's our good news uh, for the day. Get on. Can we, can, we, can we outro with a little James Brown this week, Audrey? <laughs> get on up. <laughs> I, I, I can't. Okay. Next week. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to have Not Me. It's gonna be it's gonna be an actually a really really awesome um, special guest Miriam Gottfried from the Wall Street Journal is gonna come along and have to put up with Jordan singing. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna be on vacation in Hawaii, but it's going to be a really good one. I'm I can assure you of that. So do subscribe. Uh, search for Slate Money in the iTunes Store. Leave us a review. Do send us your emails, and we'll 
tell you that no matter what you say about tipping, you're probably still wrong. Uh, <laughs> the email address is slatemoney at slate.com. The producer for Slate Money is Audrey Quinn. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. And the entire roster of Panoply podcasts can be find, found at itunes.com slash panoply. So Jordan and Kathy and not I will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene, get on up, like a sex machine, get on up, get up, get on up. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.